I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is David Ibsen, the CEO of Apollo Syndicate Management. David is a Lloyds veteran with over 25 years in the market, 20 of which he has spent in the CEO role at Lloyds Managing Agencies. In an era when so many bemoan the lack of strong personalities, David is an exception that proves the rule. David is also another extreme rarity. That's because he's a qualified actuary, but one who is also a born communicator. In this podcast, we examine David's view of the market and Apollo's strategy within it. From our chat, it soon emerges that Apollo is as exceptional as David. That's because whilst Apollo is in many ways quite a traditional Lloyd's business, the risks it is looking to take on and the products it is looking to develop are anything but... Here we discuss everything from NatCat appetites to the sharing economy and the prospects for algorithmic underwriting, all with a huge amount of energy and good humour. I had a lot of fun talking to David, and I think you will too. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. David, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. Apollo, I think I'd have to make a confession to say that this is a business I've been aware of for a really long time, but I haven't known that much about it. Maybe it's because you've been a small business that's grown. But over the last couple of years, you've really put yourselves out over the parapet. But it's made me feel that I don't know enough about Apollo. So I'm just going to ask you some, at the beginning, I think there's some what might be obvious questions. So forgive me if you think they're a bit obvious. So Apollo's got two main syndicates, 1969 and 1971. Yes. Why is it structured that way? Quite simply because capital providers have different appetites. Some capital providers want specialty lines with property and are happy to have cat exposure. Others are more interested in the developments of the sort of sharing economy and are quite happy to back that business. So we offer two syndicates. Capital providers can, can back both or either. And in addition, it's good branding for clients. And so 1971, so I bought syndicate and that's the one that's connected to more of the sharing economy the internet economy whatever we want to describe it yeah is it partly a sort of risk management thing as well 
is it because it's such some untried risk that you think, well, I don't want to pollute the sort of more standard syndicate that we know that's more tried and tested? No, not at all. <laughs> it's really because of the backers. It, it's definitely a offering optionality to capital backers. And obviously, the 1971 one, presume, given that those classes of business are exploding in terms of, you know, everyone's delivery riders have just used to have local delivery riders five years ago, but now every main street, every high street has got hundreds of them whizzing around delivering all sorts of things. So presumably those are going to be very, very high growth. Do you say 1971 is going to grow faster than 69? Yes, you can see from the growth that we put in for next year, the growth of the underlying industries that we are backing is significantly higher than the, the traditional economies. And just to put a number on that growth, now obviously the business planning sort of all done. It's just around 70%. It's huge. So how much of that is rates and how much of that is new exposure growth? I would say a majority is actual growth in terms of the underlying businesses. Then we have a small assumption on rate growth on top. And then we've got one new class of business that we're going to be writing for next year. And that's in 1971, is that that? That's in 1971. That's occupational accident. So I presume if you're growing at 70%, you must be very happy with the rate adequacy of what's, what's out there in your core classes. Well, yeah. I mean, that growth of 70% is 1971. 1969, we're, we're growing, or the capacity is growing at 50%. Yeah, every class in terms of rate adequacy, we expect to be better next year than it is this year, apart from one being terror. And despite the losses that we think the market has suffered this year, that is a class that does still have some negative rate movement in the year. We'd say it's still adequate, though. Well, clearly, we believe it's still adequate because we're writing it. But it's quite nice that it's nice to have adequacy and then be a little bit more adequate year after year. I mean, yes, this, I mean this happens so rarely, doesn't this? In, 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 <laughs> it in seems to it seems to have been quite a while since it's been like this. But I think it'll have to continue for quite a while, given the results we're seeing in the market with the cats happening the way they are. I would expect good rate adequacy to last for quite a few years. Yes, I read or no, I heard actually in an interview you did recently, you were explaining about it's like you're tempering your cat appetite. What's behind that? Is it that, you know, you just don't want it anymore? You've changed, you don't want to have that volatility in your lives? Or is it you're not getting the rate for it? Or is the nature of the risk changing? Obviously, climate change, etc. Do you feel that it's just a losing, losing wicket and it's going to get worse? The way I would think about it is short-term and long-term. From a short-term perspective, clearly the market is challenged. The cap models have failed to pick up the sort of low severity, high frequency, severe convective storms type losses that we're seeing and we're seeing lots of losses I think normally you would have expected in a five-year period for there to be maybe two years of sort of large cats and then three years of not well I think we're sort of having the last four years it seems to have been that there seemed to have been a reasonable number of cats so short term we're probably just looking at it and saying it's not reasonable to assume that it reverts to the long-term mean whatever that is as an assumption long-term We believe that the market will correct structurally. Question how much can that be dealt with through rate? You get to the point where people don't want to buy it anymore because the price is too high. But we're a specialty insurer and we think property is an important part of that portfolio. But for 2022, we're sort of seeing opportunities in other classes which outstrip those of sort of the property classes with the CAC component. You're not pulling out completely, and I presume it's a recognition that 
you're not a big enough player in CAT to be able to move the market yourself by doing anything. I think very few people are big enough players to, <laughs> to move the market in CAT. No, it's, I think pulling out is the wrong word. I think we've slightly reduced our appetite this year and we are growing all our other classes next year. So what happens is it's slightly shrunk and then it has really significantly shrunk relative to the growth that we're seeing in the rest of our portfolio. Great. So it's just a bit of rebalancing. Yes. Okay. And if it were more attractive, you would be trying to do more of it. Absolutely. And who knows, if we had this conversation a year or two's time, we may be looking at a different situation. Yeah, we'll see. Obviously, as 1-1 comes up and 1-4, next year, we'll see what happens, whether the reckoning ever comes. But there's always a tidal wave of capital being kept in reserve that people keep quiet about, it seems to be, isn't it, in CAT? Maybe. I think the market probably had enough of losing money, haven't they? <laughs> I think the market is acknowledging that the models need changing, you know, and that you need different views of risk. And many of the people I've talked to in the market are also saying that it's a, a stressed market. So I don't see masses of capital coming over the horizon to write lots of cat business. It's interesting. Again, in a recent interview, I learned about your hybrid model, which again sounds quite traditional in a very traditional Lloyd's model, or traditional for some people. It's a model that other people have taken. So it's your own writing on your own capital, leveraging third-party capital, and then doing answer third-party services and what we would have called turnkey. I know you, you're not a turnkey player because you see value in it in that managing syndicates for others as a strategic thing. You'd only do it with someone you have a strategic relationship with or want to have a strategic relationship. Within that, Lloyds has revived the captives idea. What do you think about this captives at Lloyds? Do you think it's a viable proposition? Because obviously, you know, there are captive domiciles everywhere you look. The answer is absolutely. Absolutely on various fronts. I was actually at Wellington when we set up the first captive syndicate many, many years ago. Because it was about 20 years ago when all the legislation was sort of done, enacted, and then and there was a trial one, and then that was it, wasn't it? It was, that's right. But if you think about it in terms of, ultimately, we need to provide a service to the clients. And if you take the sharing economy as an example, the clients are growing very rapidly. And as they grow and become bigger organisations, they go from sort of, we don't have a lot of information, we really need a lot of protection, through to the point where eventually they, in essence, want to self-insure. And actually, I would say probably the biggest competitor in the sharing economy is self-insurance. So from our perspective, if we can follow that client journey and say, well, actually, when you're starting and you don't have the data, well, we have a big database so we can actually support you, provide you insurance and help you grow, then actually when they get to the point where they want to self-insure, we can say, well, actually, that's a service, again, that we can provide you as part of the complete package. You know, From our perspective, if we focus on clients and do the right thing by the clients, we think that will be good for the business. Excellent. So you're really up for it and... Very much so. We should be watching the space and see if if you get one of these over the line at some point. Yeah. Oh, excellent. That's really good. I haven't heard... Sometimes people create all these new schemes and things and you wonder who's actually... Is it being driven by actual client demand? And so it's really good to hear that there is. So excellent. We've been talking about a really good market, you know, where price adequacy has come back and it's still improving. At this time, how much do you look upon your book as being opportunistic in a sense and how much of it is absolutely core that you know is for through the cycle ups and downs i think that's really really difficult to estimate you don't ask an underwriter what would you what you would you write at this point what wouldn't you i don't think we would be in a class 
if we thought the class was opportunistic. So we're not going to recruit staff and say, let's build the account for the next three years and then get out. So as such, not a class being opportunistic, but within a portfolio, underwriters are constantly looking at what works, what doesn't work. Clients move into domestic markets and out of domestic markets, and the underwriters make the judgment as to whether that's an appropriate risk to write. So I don't actually have an estimate as to what percentage would be in or out at any particular point in the cycle. And I think we just look to write the right risks at that time and stick with good clients. So. That it really is just a myth that the great cycle management sort of CEO is saying, yes, you know, when the market gets really, really soft, I just send the underwriters off to play golf. It's like, I don't think they do. Do they? I mean, no, no, I don't think they do either. <laughs> no, you just wish you'd never been in that class and you just get out of it. You know. Yeah, no, I think the key, and this is something that we're working on, is how you improve efficiency, how you improve rate analysis and how you improve client selection and how you sort of improve client engagement. That way, maybe you can outperform the rest of the market in terms of keeping going longer into the cycle, but rate is either adequate or isn't adequate at the end of the day. Um, Other than these obviously growing economy, sharing economy, you know, these things that are growing exponentially fast, when you're looking at the market, perhaps in the more traditional side, the traditional lines, you know, where do you see the best opportunities? Actually, pretty much in the specialty areas. As I said, we're growing across the board. Well, apart from property, which we just discussed. So I think we would say that we think specialty insurance is doing well at the moment, and we're cautious on property. It must be interesting, obviously, particularly as you're getting into this insure-techy kind of view of risk, and presumably some of these sharing economy risks are the sort of ones where you have policy duration of matter of hours sometimes not a standard sort of 12 months at kind of stuff that we're used to so in terms of technologically that what sort of challenge has that been to you because obviously you specifically set yourself up to try and do this so is it something almost disruptive i think it evolves to that some of the biggest challenge is data ingestion because there is so much information is how you absorb that analyze it you know and the actuaries are constantly and data scientists are constantly working on ways to crunch the data and use the data for pricing yeah and so for example with that occupational accident with that i presume that could be quite dynamic some one rider is going to be very different from another and are you getting into almost that dynamic pricing of saying yeah I, I think Fast riders who don't wear helmets obviously get (laughs) different rates. Well, I think there's lots of risk management that comes into play. It wouldn't be a selective approach. It would be offered across the whole portfolio, so there would be averages. But there is a lot of data that sort of says, yes, these are good risks and bad risks. But then I think ultimately with the, the company perhaps writing these risks on their balance sheet as well. It's all about trying to minimise accidents rather than just insure them. So you're not getting to the point where I've seen with some of the insure techs where you almost, you've got your speedometer on the dial and you've, almost got, and you've got your pay-as-you-go-insurance-ometer going, almost correlating with it. Absolutely. You can see that there will be the point where there are different routes and depending on the route, there will be a different price. Obviously, the other big technological sort of themes in Lloyd's of the last 18 months has been development of algorithmic underwriting given that you've got the iBot rover and you're in that space we haven't seen anything publicly announced on that but I presume this is something that does interest you yeah I think algorithmic underwriting intellectually interests me I think it works for homogeneous data sets 
I think we will, you know, we are, we are looking at how we can combine scalability and processing power of computers with sort of analysis and client relationships and decision making of quality underwriters. So algorithmic, I think you're probably saying no human involvement. I think we're more augmented, which is computer power plus underwriting power, which we think can be operationally efficient and perhaps deal with some of the more nuanced elements of risk selection. I was at a conference recently and one of the CEOs on the panel said he was worried about almost these technological tanks being parked on the lawn of the underwriter. And then I was at another panel during that event and someone said, actually, we're kidding ourselves a little bit with some with specialty that we think, obviously, you know, some of these risks that we're underwriting are so bespoke, they've got so many different data points. But actually, I had a broker saying, well, you know what, we boil it down to there's actually about five that are actually the important ones. So do you think we could get to the point where things that we thought could only be bespoke human only could be done by machine? I don't believe in a world where machine does everything, but I do believe in a world where the machine can improve what human only is doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for us, the combination of man and machine, and man being man and woman and machine, is probably the way to go. I think some people are overselling the way in which it can all be computerised, and some people are overselling the difficulty of being able to include analysis in the process. So it's more... It's improved the skill of the underwriter to give them everything that they need to make difficult decisions and and productivity, I presume. Yeah, so split it into three blocks, really. One is all the information that's available and how you use that in an efficient way to make good risk decisions. The other is productivity. Can you be clearer on your risk appetite? Can you use sort of ingestion engines to say these are risks that you're more likely to bind? So spend time on the risks that you will write. And then the third element of the sort of augmented underwriting is client engagement, making sure you work with a client and deliver something they want. And do you think this is going to bode well for the expense ratio ultimately? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, yes, I presume that some of the ramp-up costs are a bit painful. But... but it is more about writing more business that you like at attractive rates rather than reducing costs. So the percentage costs go down, not the actual costs. And writing two good risks is better than writing two not very good risks absolutely because <laughs> it's just much cheaper isn't it because it improves your loss ratio as well right yes obviously another big technological change is something because it's almost like a permanent revolution in the london market certainly throughout my career my interaction with it that we've always been some kind of reform improving the plumbing around london we're in another really important phase of that at the moment some would say a crucial phase it's difficult to say make or break because we've not always done it and it hasn't always broken before But, you know, it is a particularly important phase at the moment. Do you think everything's going fine and is it going fast enough? I think you can always point to things that you'd like to go faster and you can always find fault in things. I would say that the London market and Lloyd's have always sort of delivered when they've had to in the end. And uh, so I think the reform will happen, but as always, it will be painful. Presumably you don't think you've got a better way of doing it yourself. No. <laughs> and you're kind of grateful that someone else is doing it. Absolutely. I'm very grateful for the Lloyd's market. But yes, you'd see you could just got that frustration that yeah, you just wish it was going faster, you wish it was all done. Have you ever had something that you don't want to go faster? Um, <laughs> and you don't want to be easier and you don't want it to have been done. I think that's, I'm not sitting there going, I can't do something because it's not been done. But when it has been done, clearly things will be better. Brilliant. Okay. Um, another really big thing that's been going on is, is ESG. 
And that looks to many like a very, very interesting opportunity. How are you going about this? Because it seems to be, it's going to be touching everything as far as I can see. Absolutely. And, you know, the importance for us has been sort of engaging with the staff, making sure we're doing what we as a business want to do. Our chairman is a member of the Green Party, so very much driving that from an Apollo perspective. It's all about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing and supporting the companies that are trying to do the right thing. But ESG isn't just about E, although that's getting a lot of focus at the moment. It's also about the S bit and, you know, engaging with our staff and making sure they're comfortable with how we're doing it and what we're doing is clearly paying dividends on that side too. Yeah, how do you approach that balance though on energy, for example? It must be hard. And at some point, but also you're investing in all the sort of ESG scoring systems and things that are going to be coming in. It's almost as if that's going to be on every line, isn't it? I think assessing who are the good players and the bad players is a major challenge and going to be expensive. And for a financial institution or something, you think, goodness, how are they going to get an ESG number when they've got millions of clients and different loan books in different parts of the world? It must be really hard. It's not easy, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying. Yes, I suppose all the data is available, isn't it? Well, some of it is. (laughs) I think in varying levels of quality and I think the challenge is, you know, who's greenwashing, who's not greenwashing, no doubt we'll all make mistakes. I think at the end of the day, we'll reflect back on the things and say, did we make the decision using the data we had to try and do the right thing? And that that's the core sort of judgment that we'll hold ourselves accountable to. Obviously, there's an ESG sort of backed syndicate. You see interesting new source of capital that's so much sort of green labelled uh, capital out there do you not want to, to maybe harness some of that for your business obviously you work with third-party capital i think the idea of an esg focused syndicate definitely something of interest we've got a lot on at the moment so so we so that's not plan a but we definitely in the sbs area have been talking to someone that's very green focused you can imagine because yeah and also it seems to be much lower cost of capital at the moment obviously the green stuff is sort of you know almost zero cost of capital isn't it it looks like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it isn't in the long run. It just can't be. It's going to have to make a proper return, isn't it, over the long term. I wanted to ask you, in terms of how your personal investment and your, you know, your career investment in Apollo, how do you look upon that as a business builder? You know, is it the sort of thing, there are some people who want to build a business forever and sort of leave it to their grandchildren, almost like their name above the door, not literally. Are you that sort of business? Or is there something in the back of your mind where you say, well, we're working to this plan, you know, that we're going to, we expect to be acquired at some point, or we've got no specific plan, but at some point someone will come with an offer we can't refuse and we'll become the specialty arm of some massive multinational or something. I would say from a business perspective, because it almost feels like there are two questions there. One is personal and one is business. Well, it's, but, it, yeah, but, but it's your business. Well, you've got a lot invested in it. I've got a lot invested in it, but I would say we've got an awful lot of people working here as well that have a lot invested in it. It's our business, not my business. No, I understand that, yeah. But I would say 61% of our um, employees are millennials. I know that's a wide band in terms of age range. I would say that last year or the year before and continues, we talk every year in terms of strategy review and absolutely everyone is looking to build for the long term. So in terms of your what type of business are we, I would say we are one that wants to keep building and keep building successfully. I think if we are successful, you retain the right to be independent. But as you get more successful, there inevitably will be more requirements for additional capital. But additional capital doesn't mean becoming 
the sort of the subsidiary of some major conglomerate that wants to tell you what to do. So I, I would say philosophically as a business, we want to grow, develop and keep growing and develop and retaining the independence of management here. Personally, I will get to an age where someone else will be running the business. Yeah, and I suppose sometimes if you're too busy growing, there's no way you're going to be thinking about, you know, M&A. It doesn't sound... The organic opportunities for us to grow definitely mean that we don't have to think about M&A. I'd say in my experience as a financial journalist, the businesses that are growing at 50 and 70% don't tend to be the ones that get acquired, they get invested in. And talking about investment, just forgive me, Again, it's sort of um, Apollo 101, really, sort of stuff. And something, a question I've never asked you is, you've got a relationship with Howden, just under 10%, 9.9%, under 9.9% shielding from the Howden group there. When people ask you about that, what, what do you tell them? What's this relationship you've got with Howden? Particularly other brokers, obviously. No, no, I, I understand. <laughs> um, actually, I don't think, apart from when they, they became a shareholder, I don't think I've been asked that question for many, many years now. But, you know, if if you did come and ask me that question, you were a broker, what would I say? Well, they're a great shareholder. They hold their shareholding independently to the broker business because that's fundamentally the question you're asking. And we have a great relationship with them. But they do not interfere direct or, or sort of direct our business in any way that would con- give anyone any concern. This is more of a strategic investment, obviously. Yeah. And obviously you work at, you've got a, another hat at Jewel as well. So, so it's just, you obviously clearly got a good We have a good relationship. And, you know, I would hope we have a good relationship with other brokers too. Well, David, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I think we could have just gone into all these subjects, you know, a bit longer and deeper. But, you know, clearly you're buzzing with energy and I think it'll come across on this podcast to everyone listening. So I just want to thank you for, for giving up your time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.